Indiana Bible College is committed to training tomorrow's apostolic leaders today. And this is the Indiana Bible College podcast. Today on the podcast, we have longtime missionary, a tremendous couple, and one of the many Turners here on campus, Brother William Turner, former missionary to South Korea, Russia, and the Soviet Union. And he is just a articulate wealth of knowledge and experience. And this sermon that you're going to hear is an absolute goldmine of both of those things. Brother William Turner preaches this message, the incredible journey and the cost to get there. You do not want to miss his story and his admonition right here, starting right now. Um, I've told people that I think I told well it was probably Brother Gallion the other day in the uh, break room I said I think I'm enjoying teaching this semester more than I ever have and uh, it's because I have a great group of students those classes they helped me out this morning uh, I'm a sort of a 20th century teacher in a 21st century and uh, so I'm doing this class by zoom and I've got a one of my students Ariel it was not feeling well today so she was she was watching um, not in the classroom and I I even set it up so that she could um, zoom in and be part of the class. And I even saw her face on the screen. And then I kind of forgot that she was there. And uh, I, got, I got in the middle of that class. And, and uh, as sometimes happens to me, I forgot a name. And um, a, a name of someone that was pertinent to the class, uh, that I, the subject I was teaching, and uh, so I asked, I was asked the students in the class, can you think of that name, because it was someone we had discussed earlier, and nobody could come up with that name, and then I, then I, suddenly I heard this disembodied voice that gave me the name, uh, and it was Ariel, and I, such a, an amazing moment, I thought maybe it was God speaking in that classroom. Uh, well, I, I've got a, I've got a prologue to this uh, sermon, so let me, let me put the uh, sermon title on the screen. The, I'm calling this, the incredible journey, and the price for a ticket. And let's just look at one verse before you're seated, Mark 16 and 15. He said unto them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Just that one verse, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Would you, uh, would you just lift your hand with me and let's just pray and let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for this group of students that are gathered here. Thank you for this chapel service. Thank you for another opportunity to hear from you. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. 
We ask you to help us today and speak to us today from your word. We give you praise. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was, uh, I was 28 years old when I went to Bible college. And uh, that was in Portland, Oregon at a Bible college that no longer exists. There was a, a former missionary, John Clemen, and his wife, Ruby Clemen. John Clemen was the president of the school at that time. I went there because it was the, at, in those days, it was the premier uh, missions Bible college. And I wanted to be involved in global missions. And uh, that, was in, that was in 1976. In 1976, uh, there was a, a, a different world of course, than what you're living in right now to, in, in many respects. But I've, I've made this statement before, and I know you've heard this statement, that you are living in, in the most incredible generation of the church and that God is going to use you, if you will allow him to, to see the most incredible revival that the church has ever seen in all its history. I, I really do believe that. And in fact, I think it's already beginning to happen. And I want to tell you, uh, just let's just compare 1976 to 2022. When I went to Bible college in, in uh, 1976 uh, with my wife and uh, our little daughter and, and, a, and another child on the way when we went to Portland, uh, <clears throat> There was a very different world. 1976 was the year that uh, that um, the longtime dictator of uh, of of China, uh, Mao Zedong, died that year, and China had gone through several decades, or at least two decades, of the most horrendous cultural turmoil, and. Uh, uh, murder of Chinese citizens, millions died in the Cultural Revolution and all of that upheaval, many starved to death during that time and China was not going forward under communism, it was, it was collapsing. Uh, then 76, Mao dies and uh, briefly uh, Chou Enlai comes to power and then uh, there is a new man that steps into the into power in China, uh, and um, he changes things. Uh, he, he says, we've, we've got to reach into the modern world. We've got to modernize our economy and have some, some bit of capitalism to uh, let this economy start to flourish. And with that came some uh, relatively, not extensive, but some new freedoms in China and something began to change at that point, from that point on. There had, and I know I've said this before to some of you, uh, so this will be the last time I'll say this this semester, and I won't make any promises for the future, but I was, uh, I was writing a, a, a history book for global missions on the first 75 years of, of um, 
global missions history, and I, one, one of the areas I was covering was Asia, and so I was looking into what happened in China. In, in uh, 1945, when the United Pentecostal Church was established, we had 10 missionaries uh, that were appointed back to China. Most, almost all of them, in fact, all of them had been there. They had suffered during World War II and, and uh, under the uh, Japanese, and then they, they came back for a brief time. And, um, and then all of the missionaries, when, when the revolution took place and the communists came to power in, in 1949, all of our missionaries and every other missionary in China was kicked out of China. And uh, Mao and the communists did their best to stamp out Christianity because they were going to establish uh, a godless state. The, the state itself would be supreme. And uh, so at that time, in 1949, there were, uh, they, they were said to be three million Catholics in China and less than one million Protestants of all kinds, including oneness Pentecostals. So not even four million Christians of any kind. And uh, we had a number of churches, a number of thriving churches at, at that point, but they were they were shut down, and people were sent to prison. Some were killed, and, and uh, we didn't really hear from them for several generations. <clears throat> and then, so then this transformation begins to take place uh, in China beginning in 1976, but really into the 80s, and uh, Christianity starts to thrive in China. And then I read... Uh, two years ago, I read this incredible article in the Wall Street Journal. It was an interview with a, uh, a professor at Purdue University in Lafayette who uh, uh, directs the Center for the Study of Religion and Culture in uh, the Far East. It used to be in China, but uh, they're trying to broaden that. And so uh, he made this statement in the, this interview that took me completely by surprise two years ago, and that was that since the 1980s, religion in China has just just bloomed and uh, grown at uh, tremendous rates. So he said that there are now 100 million Christians in China. 100 million Christians in China when there were less than 4 million in 1949. And uh, I, I was just stunned by that. And I, I went to Lafayette. I arranged for an interview uh, with this man. And I was asking him further about this. And he was well aware of Pentecostalism in China, although I think his background might have been Catholic. But... Uh, he was well aware of Pentecostalism in China, and he made this statement. He said, of that 100 million Christians that are now in China, at least 25% of them, he said it would not be far-fetched to say, 25% of them have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and spoken in tongues. That means... 25 million people in China have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoken in tongues. 
And we know, we know at least three million of them in the true Jesus church believe in the oneness of God, water baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost with evidence of other speaking in other tongues. They have some doctrinal differences from us. So I've, I've been to one of their churches in Korea, and, and uh, they, they are somewhat different. But nevertheless, they still believe in one God. They, uh, they, uh, they believe in baptism in Jesus' name. And then that does not include this vast and fastly growing underground church in China. I've talked to some of our uh, missionaries there, and they are not even, you won't see their name on the record books in, uh, at Global Missions. They're, they're, uh, they're not being publicized, but they're there. And they are saying that there are multiplied thousands increasingly of people that have not only received the Holy Ghost, but have been baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, believe in the oneness of God. You know what that means, folks? That means there are more oneness Pentecostals in communist China under a repressive uh, human, in terms of human rights, a repressive regime. There are more oneness Pentecostals in China that have received the Holy Ghost than there are in the United States and Canada. Think about that. Think about that. That's incredible. And then, uh, oh, and, and uh, this professor also told me that at the rate that they are growing, uh, about 7% a year, uh, Christianity has now become unstoppable. No, no matter how much they persecuted or tried to stamp it out, it's impossible to stop it now. And he said that within the next decade, by the end of this decade, there probably will be as many as 250 million Christians in China. And if 25% of them have received the Holy Spirit, then you've got an amazing movement of the Spirit in that country. Yeah. And that means, that means by the end of this decade, there will be more Christians in China than probably there will be in the United States. More Christians in China than in the United States in just a decade. And I'm telling you that because I'm saying you are living in a remarkable time in history. And then let me just add this to this prologue. That another article I just read about a week or two ago, and it was about Pentecostalism, or it was about Catholicism in Central and South America. And uh, did you see that? Anybody see that article? And... Yeah, there's another hand waving back there. And, uh, and, and now, in, in Central and South America, there are seven nations that are no longer majority Catholic in those countries. There are no, they are no longer Catholic. And very possibly, before this year is over, Brazil will become another one that is no longer a majority Catholic. Now, this is an incredible thing. And this article in the Wall Street Journal went on to say that uh, what is displacing them is Pentecostalism. That's what's taking their place. 
and, and uh, we can expect that to continue. And this doesn't even, uh, I'm not even talking about what God is doing elsewhere in Asia and, uh, and Africa where uh, amazing things are taking place. I'm trying to tell you this morning that you really are living in the most remarkable period of church history right now. And it's not because you are so special. I mean, you are special, but you're not any different than, than the generation of Pentecostals that went to China in the early part of the 20th century. You're not any different from them. You've been born again of the water and the Spirit, and you've dedicated your lives to Jesus Christ. What makes you special is the opportunity that God is going to give your generation to be involved in what he's doing in the world. I think we ought to just lift our hands and thank him for that this morning. Thank God for what you're doing in our world, Lord. Praise God. Praise God. So, uh, out of that verse, go into all the world and preach the gospel, I, I, I think I'd just like to focus on one word, go. Go. And I know you've already begun that journey because you're sitting here today. You've responded to that. But it is an incredible journey that you're on. Uh, Forty years ago, pardon me, I, I just am a little older. But 40 years ago, I can still remember a message I heard preached. And it, it startled me so much that I've never forgotten it. And uh, I, I think it was Chester Wright that, that preached this. If, I, if that's a mistake, then forgive me, whoever. But uh, he was preaching about uh, the disciples on that boat and, and trying to get to shore in that stormy sea, and the wind is blowing, and the waves are white-capping, and, and they are afraid. And then out of the mists blowing across that tossed, storm-tossed sea comes Jesus walking on the water. And they're at first they are afraid, and then someone says, I, I think that's the Lord. And, and Peter says, Lord, if that is you, then bid me to come to you. And Jesus said one word to him, come. And then there was this incredible statement in that sermon. And so the Bible says, and so Peter starts walking on the water toward Jesus. And we know that as long as he was looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water, but when he looked down at all the, all the waves and everything, and the wind, he started to sink. But uh, this, the, the preacher of this message that I heard 40 years ago made this statement, said, Peter did not walk on the water. What? Wait a minute. The Bible said Peter walked on the water. He said, no, Peter did not walk on the water. Peter walked on the word. Come. It's impossible to walk on water. It's physically, according to the laws that God himself established for this world, uh, it's impossible. Peter was heavier than the water. He could not walk on the water, but he could walk on the word. He could do the impossible by walking on the word. Come. Just one word. He could walk on that. Isn't that amazing? And what I'm saying to you today is, there's just this one word, go, and you can walk on that word wherever it takes you. 
you can walk on that word. It may take you overseas. It may take you to a, a, another city in, in this uh, country that doesn't have a church, or I don't know where it's going to take you personally. But you've already begun the journey, and the reason that you are here is you're walking on a word. Go. Uh, so my wife and I were, were 23 years old when we, when we got in the church. I grew up in the church as a boy. I knew, I knew about oneness Pentecostal. I knew Acts 2.38. I, I knew uh, the old songs, uh, Sunday school stories. But when I got in high school, I, I got away from God. I didn't, hadn't received the Holy Ghost, and I got my heart on other things. I was uh, drawn away by the things of the world, and uh, uh, I wanted to go to university. Neither of my parents had ever had a chance to go to school beyond high school, and uh, in fact, neither of them were even able to finish high school. Uh, and <clears throat> I thought, well... You know the church. Okay, it's good. It's but it's that's for my folks. That's that's their crutch, and and uh, I admire them for their dedication. But I want other things, and so I went in those directions. Um, I went to Indiana University, and met my wife there. She didn't know anything about Pentecost, but I really do believe that God put her in my life, uh, not because of what she knew, but because what kind of heart she had, and. Uh, Actually, I think I could say that she kept me from going off into uh, deep things that would have been very bad for me uh, just because she wasn't going to go in that direction. So we graduated. We uh, did a year of graduate school, and then we got, I got a job as a journalist in, in Arizona. And uh, uh, this, so this was uh, when we were 23 years old. We moved to Tucson, Arizona, and... Uh, we, she was, had a teaching job. I had my job at the newspaper, and we were getting everything, doing everything we thought we wanted. And a, as I was progressing, a, 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 taking the steps and advancing my career, it, just, it was less and less satisfying to me. There was something still empty there that uh, my idea that the, the problems of the world could be solved if we just educate people, if they just could get the facts and we'll make the right kinds of decisions. And, and, and pretty soon it began to dawn on me, that's not working. That's not going to work. Man can't solve his own problems because there's a deeper problem and that goes into the heart of man and that's sin. Finally, uh, my, my mother had a friend that lived out, they had moved to Arizona and she was going to a church there in Tucson and, and my mother asked her to call me and invite us to church and uh, I took her call but I was, I was not very polite and I, I, I got her off that call as fast as I could. I do remember she said, you're welcome to come anytime our church is just north of where you live. Well, I couldn't, re I couldn't remember that but so two or three months later, when we finally decided we've got to try something, I, we were at the point where we were just, maybe we should just, you know, this is back in sort of the, the hippie years, and we were thinking maybe we'd just quit our jobs and get us a van and go to Mexico. No se habla español, but oh well. And so, uh, but I said, 
we said, well, maybe we should try one more thing, but who do we know that's really happy? And we said, well, my parents. They're the only people that I know that are truly happy. And what is it? So maybe there, maybe we should, we'd explored a number of other churches. We'd gone to a Catholic church. We'd gone to a Methodist. We went to all of them that we, but I didn't, I, I knew, I knew what the real thing was, if, if there was a real thing. And, and so we gave up on all that. But so we started looking for this church, this, it was a United Pentecostal church, but I, I, it, it, in the phone book, it didn't say United Pentecostal. It was, it was actually Faith Tabernacle. And so we went to a couple of places. And, uh, but finally, we located it. And uh, we decided, all right, we're going to go. And we pulled up into that parking lot on a Sunday morning. And uh, I sat there, turned off the engine. And we just sat there. And my wife said, well, well we're here. Aren't we going to go in? But I knew what was going to happen if I walked into that church. I knew that it was going to be all or nothing. And uh, my wife didn't quite understand that. But we, we got out, we went in, and uh, we heard it. The pastor wasn't there. He was at a, a general conference, and we heard a wonderful message that touched our hearts. And uh, anyway, at the, at the end of it all, we, uh, we, we really started getting serious with God. And a few weeks later, we made a, a, a decision. We're going to, I made a decision and my wife, I, I wasn't consulting her and she wasn't consulting me, but we decided both of us, we're going to that altar and we're going to, we're going to repent. And I went and I didn't know what she, I didn't even look at her, but she went down as well. And, uh, I tried to pray I tried, to, I, I, I tried to ask God uh, to forgive me. I said, there must be more to life than this. Help me. And, and I, it was like heaven was a brass ceiling. I, I just couldn't seem to get anywhere in my prayer. And I thought, uh-oh, you have waited too long. You've denied him, and so now he's going to deny you. And, uh, but I went to, we were walking out, and little sister Mengele came up to us and said, oh, you prayed so well. Come back and We'll pray again. And I thought, what? Do you want us to come back? I thought I failed the test. And so we came back. And the next time I went to that altar, something broke in my heart. And all of that old sin that had built and crusted and dammed up inside of me just broke away. And I began to weep. And I could not stop crying. And I hadn't cried since I was a boy. And it felt so good. It, it felt so cleansing. Repentance is a wonderful, wonderful experience. It's dying to your old life. And uh, I had a lot of dying to do. And so finally, uh, after a couple of altar services like that, finally Brother Connor came to us and he said, well, I think we've done all we can do here. It's time to go to the water. And so, yeah, I said, let's go. And he baptized Elizabeth and me in Jesus' name. And uh, I came up out of that water feeling so clean, so fresh. Something new was happening in my life, and I was so thankful. You know, when, when people have a genuine repentance experience, that is, that is a remarkable thing. That is a, uh, 
that is a point of conversion. And we should, uh, we should never think lightly of that. That's an amazing thing that God has done in people's lives. There are a lot of people in the world that have had that kind of experience, but they don't know how to go farther than that. And, and uh, anyway, within a, within a few more weeks, we had both received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, spoken tongues. I just wanted to... Uh, they had a carpet a little bit like this. I want, if I could have, I would have hid my face inside the warp and the woof of that carpet. I, I just felt so unworthy of what God was doing in my life. And, and from that point on, we, we made this decision that I suspect, I mean, I anticipate, I feel that everybody sitting in this room today, I hope so, made the decision, I'm going to give this everything I've got. I'm going to give it everything I've got. And I want, I want to be involved in everything. This is the most important, significant thing I could possibly do with my life. And so, uh, uh, I don't know, it might have been even the week after we got baptized, certainly the week after I got the Holy Ghost, somebody on their evangelism committee said, why don't you come out and we're, you can go door-to-door uh, -door visitation with us. That scared me to death. And uh, I said, okay, yeah. And so we went we went door-to-door, -door and, and the, the, the first door we came to, I knocked on the door, and nobody answered. I was so relieved. <laughs> and then the next door we knocked on, uh, that, that lady was so kind to us, and, and she took our invitation and thanked us for coming by, and I said, this is not so bad after all. And so we were involved, and we were involved in visitation, and then uh, 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 somebody started talking about a bus route, and, and my wife and I said, well, we'll we, can, we can drive that bus. So they raised money. We got a Sunday school bus, and we were the bus drivers, and we were picking up kids and bringing them to school. And pretty soon she was teaching a Sunday school class. I was teaching the high school students, and, and then I was the outreach leader, and... and uh, one one dramatic thing that happened to me was uh, we were we went to the University of Arizona to to pass out some flyers and and there was a there was a at the student union building there was a movie theater and so young people were lined up to go to the end of the movie theater and some were coming out and and uh, we we talked to people and we passed out these tracks but there was something uh, pressing me that said this we we've got to say something we somebody's got to preach here and so. I was the guy that was in charge, so I preached my first sermon on the street, and uh, it was just exhilarating. It probably only lasted about a minute, uh, maybe two, uh, but I, something happened in me that uh, was just amazing, and so we started having, we started having street services on, um, on our, on our visitations and uh, on Saturdays, and we even had a gospel wagon, a, kind of a flatbed trailer that we could put a, did we put a piano on there? Or we, at least we had, my wife learned to play the accordion, a couple of ladies playing the accordion, and, and we got up and we went to different places and were preaching on the streets. And I began to realize I would rather preach on the street than I would behind a pulpit. And, uh, and, and later on, when I, when I went to Korea and I was uh, 
teaching those young men in the Bible college. That was our preaching class. We went to the streets, and I said, if you can't preach on the street, then you don't belong standing behind a pulpit. And there was another, there was a, a man in that church, Ernie Province, that he, he said, have you ever done any fasting? I said, no, I, I, I haven't. And he started talking to me about fasting. And he said, he said, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It'll open up doors for you. And, and, uh, um, he said, I, I, I was at a, he was in the air force and he had been in, in a place in Mississippi where there was a very small little church and an old pastor there, but that old pastor taught him how to fast and pray. And he said, we would fast three or four days a, a week. And he said, uh, 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 the four-day fast, something, some, uh, usually it, in the, at the end of that fast, the Lord would wake me up in the middle of the night and just pour out blessings on me. And I thought, wow, that sounds wonderful. And so he said, uh, we we uh, we started doing some fasting, and he said, "Let's let's uh, let's fast three days a week uh, for this next month." And uh, I was working at the newspaper, and he was working uh, on the flight line at the air base. And and uh, I said, oh, "Okay, let's do it." And and uh, he was suggesting four days, but I thought three would perhaps be enough for starters. <laughs> and and. Uh, and it was, it, it was not easy. It was not easy. Uh, and uh, I got through that first day and I got through that second day. I think probably the first week we decided to do that, I was, I was supposed to go out and, and there was some kind of conference or convention that was taking place up there at the foothills of the beautiful Tucson Mountains. And it was a resort place. And uh, so I was, I was there to cover that conference and they had a big breakfast table with everything, all kinds of well, sweet rolls, anything you wanted for breakfast, they had it right there. And they said to me, uh, you know, just help yourself, whatever you want. So I had just turned it away. And, uh, and anyway, after the end of that, by the end of that four months, something broke in my spiritual life, that uh, a barrier that had kind of been there, that uh, opened up things in the Lord that I had not experienced before, the gifts of the Spirit and so forth. I'm just telling you, I, I got on this incredible journey, and I wanted to get everything that I possibly could. I wanted to do everything I possibly could for the Lord. Is there anybody here that feels that way? I just want to do everything I can for God. And uh, then uh, I was... I was working the, the the night evening shift, and so I couldn't be at the wind or whatever it was the Bible study. Maybe it was Wednesday night, and uh, uh, they had a missionary come to Faith Tabernacle. I never heard a missionary before, but when I got home that night, my wife said we had the most wonderful service tonight. A missionary spoke. I don't know who it was, but she told me all about it. So excited and. Finally, I, I, I got a sort of a promotion, and I was on days, and now I could go to all the church services, and I started hearing missionaries speak. And when I heard my first missionary, I don't know who it was now, but uh, after that, I, I realized something in my heart. That's what I want to do. I want to make the greatest impact that I possibly can. And what about all these countries overseas that they've never even heard about Jesus? Now, I want to be involved in that. And so 
uh, we, we just sort of set our minds to do that. But, but uh, I was, I, in fact, I was going to go to Africa because they, um, they needed someone there that could teach in their, their school in Liberia uh, to keep the work open. And uh, I didn't even know I had a call to preach. I just wanted to do something for God. I knew we could do that. And so I went to my pastor and he very wisely said, yeah, I'll go send your application in and and then uh, you're going to general conference this, uh, this fall, so uh, we can talk to Brother and Sister Freeman while you're there. And, and uh, so I was fine. I was doing all the things I was doing in the church. And, and uh, we got to general conference. That What an amazing general conference service. I heard Robert Rodenbush preach for the first time, the first time I ever knew anything about him. And he was talking about what God was doing in Ghana and and uh, Ivory Coast, and it was it was an amazing service. People by the hundreds came down at the end of that service to dedicate their lives to the Lord. I, those tears started coming, and I, I went looking for my pastor, and I finally found him, and, and I said, could we speak to the Freemans? And he said, yeah, they're up on the platform, so let's go on up. I said, well, can I go on the platform? Yeah, yeah, you come on. And so... Went up and spoke to brother and sister Freeman. I was crying so badly uh, with what I was feeling in the spirit, and I couldn't talk. And finally, sister Freeman said, "Brother Turner, get a hold of yourself." That's right. I did, and uh, and I so I said, "Brother Freeman," I said, "We saw that that advertisement for school teachers in the foreign missions publication at that time, and, and that was six months ago." I said. I'm sure that's already been filled because I just I just thought everybody would be chomping at the bits to get to do things like that. And he looked at me and he said, No, Brother Turner, no one has come forward for that. I was I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. I said, Well, my wife and I I think we could do that. And he said, Well, well, good. Just uh <clears throat> go ahead and and uh, go ahead and put your application or renew your application and we'll talk about this more. And so went home and then I really started praying about it. I realized I wasn't ready. And uh, I talked to my pastor. And I know you've heard this many times right here in this chapel, but you need to have a godly man in your life. You need to have a pastor in your life. And uh, so I, I went to him and I said, you know, I don't think I'm ready for this. I need, I need to learn more right here with you and he said all right well so I, I I called the foreign missions office I said we can't do this now just but keep our application on hold we'll we'll be there later we'll reapply later on and uh so the years went by I was we were five years there in in Tucson and then uh I was I had I was assistant pastor I, we were I've been working part-time for the church. Uh, things were going wonderful. It's a tremendous church. It's, it's grown tremendously since then. Paul Connor's pastor there now. And uh, I just felt this restlessness in my spirit. It was, that, it was that go. It was that go into all the world. And it was still, uh, it was still moving me. And uh, I, 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 I followed it. I obeyed it locally. We went out in the streets. We went door to door. We, I tried to obey it there, but that go was motivating me and pushing me. And so 
uh, I told my pastor about it. He said, uh, well, I, I understand it's time for you to do something. What do you feel? And I said, it's, it's, it's missions. I want, uh, we want to go to the foreign field. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, he said, I think the best thing for you to do is go to the Bible college in Portland. And, uh, and, and if Brother Clemen will let you do a one-year program, then uh, you should go. So I said, okay. So he called Brother Clemen right then from his office, and Brother Clemen said, yes, we'll arrange that. Come on. So, so now uh, here we are. We, we have one child who's only a couple of years old, two or three years old, and, and our, our son is, uh, my wife is six months pregnant with our son. We own a house. We've, uh, things have been progressing in terms of materially, but uh, this go was just pushing me on. And so uh, we put our house up for sale, and within two weeks, we sold our house and had an, uh, the bank owned most of it, but we had enough money that we could make the move to Oregon and I could pay my first uh, uh, quarter of tuition, and we could pay rent, had to pay one month of rent, and, a, and, a, and then the first month of rent, and uh, enough to live on for about a month. And uh, incredibly, I mean, that, that seems like a crazy thing to do if you're married and you've got a, already got a child and, you, and your wife's already pregnant with a second child and you've got to sell your house and you put all your what little earthly goods into a U-Haul trailer and you go to Portland, Oregon where you don't even have a job and you don't even know where you're going to live. But uh, it's just this go and what I'm trying to say to you today is that God will meet you all along this incredible journey if you obey the command to go. Praise God. And uh, we got up there and we looked around for a house and finally we, we, we did find a house that we moved in. It was just two and a half blocks from one of the local churches and it also happened to be at the, the last section of that block that was in uh, low-income housing. And so we were, the, the houses on the other side of the street did not qualify, but we were on this side of the street, and we did qualify. So my wife got free postnatal care. We got free dentistry and uh, just on and on. But then I didn't have a job. And uh, we were we had been living on this money, but uh, the month was going, and I did still did not have a job. And... Um, we were running out of cash. I had I'd gone to the local newspapers, put in an application, and uh, they, they had these big stacks of applications at both newspapers. The Portland Oregonian, the, the, the biggest newspaper in town, he'd had a bigger stack. And they said, well, all I can do is put your name on the bottom. I didn't know how to do anything else. I'm not like my brother. I can't do mechanical things. And, then, and on and on. In fact, he made this for me. And uh, so... But I, I was desperate. I, I've got a family, so I said, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll do janitor work, whatever. I have to wash dishes. i got to take care of my family. But I was trying to go to school at the same time. And a, right when I needed it the most, I got a phone call from the Portland Oregonian. and said, we're starting a new edition uh, for a, a weekend edition, and, and we'll give you a chance to, uh, to do this. But you, uh, you've got to cover all, all the local politics for the upcoming election that fall, and we got to have it in one week. And I, I, I needed new glasses. I couldn't see the, the road signs very well. I didn't know Portland, but I had to do 60 interviews that week. 
and uh, take photographs and write up this stuff. And, and, and I got it all done, and I, and, and I could turn in 60 hours of work for that, and they, gave, they paid me for overtime. And our, I got the job, the permanent halftime job. I was making more money there than I made full-time in Tucson, and God was supplying our needs. Hallelujah. And then, then Edwin Judd, the Secretary of Foreign Missions, came, and, and I had an interview with him, and uh, uh, he said, well, uh, you could probably get on uh, as an, uh, like, uh, they didn't have these designations back then, but be kind of like an associate missionary. But if you want to get a full appointment, you need to have some pastoral <coughs> experience, even though you've been a, a, an assistant pastor. And I said, okay. And uh, Sister Darlene Cantola Royer was one of our instructors there, and she was waiting for us, and she said, well, what did he say? And I told her, he said, well, have you heard about uh, this city on the coast? And I said, no, I didn't know anything about it. He said, one of our home missions pastors has been going there. There's one woman that has the Holy Ghost there, and they want a church. And, and so my wife and I took that over. And anyway, long story short, we, uh, I, I finished my, my Bible college career, ended quickly, and I we, we moved to the Oregon coast, and uh, uh, I, had, I had unemployment because they, the Oregonian would not keep my job on, if I went to the coast, and so I had a, almost a year of unemployment checks, so we were living on that unemployment, and uh, we, could rent, we rented a house at the old Coast Guard barracks, and, not the barracks, but apartments, and uh, it was cheap, and God supplied that. But then I was running out of money again, and I still didn't have a job. And it, it was much harder to find a job up there. There weren't, there weren't that many jobs. It was in lumbering or, or fishing and so forth. I had no experience with any of that. And uh, so uh, I thought I had one more uh, month of unemployment checks coming. I went to a, a conference down in California, and my wife, I called my wife from there, and she said, we just got our last unemployment check. I said, what? I thought we had another month. No, this was the last one. So I went back home, and uh, it was also, it was, now it was about Thanksgiving time. We were running, we were literally running out of food, and I, and we, now we've got a, two little children, and uh, the cupboards were starting to get bare, and uh, we had a couple coming up from the Bible college to help us and on the weekends, and they came that weekend before Thanksgiving, or a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, and they said, we've got a surprise for you, so come on out to the car. We went to the car, the Bible college, and I hadn't said anything about our uh, tenuous financial situation, but they had taken up a grocery shower for us, and they came... Uh, they came with their car full of sacks of groceries, including a turkey. And I, I got a call from the district foreign missions rep. They had a missionary, uh, Johnny Garrison, no, Gar no, Wilhoit. Johnny Wilhoit was a, uh, a missionary in Mexico. They were in the district, but they had nowhere to go to Thanksgiving. I said, well, send him on up here. They, and we had a turkey. And uh, so God provided that, and then... And then I got a job uh, on, the, uh, on the radio doing the morning news, and that kept us going. I put in an application for Christmas Christ. I'm almost finished with this segment here. I got a, another point I want to get to. But uh, we were, 
I, we, we were approved for Christmas for Christ, and I wanted to buy some land for the church so, that, so we could get a building there. And, and uh, we'd been baptizing people, and people had received the Holy Ghost. And, and uh, uh, so they, they approved us for, for uh, district approved us for Christmas for Christ. The area people approved us for Christmas for Christ said, you're a priority area. You will get this. And so I said, okay, okay. And, but then uh, I was, it was going along, and I hadn't heard anything from home missions, not anything. And I started hearing by rumor that here in, this guy over here in Idaho got Christmas for Christ and so on. And, and I went out to the Oregon coast, and I had a prayer meeting with the Lord, just the Lord and me on that wild Oregon coast. And finally I said, Lord, you know what you put in my heart I still want to go to the foreign field, but if you want me to die here, I will. And two weeks after that, I got a, a letter from Elton Bernard, our, David Bernard, our, our superintendent's uh, father, from Korea. I never met Elton Bernard before, and it took two weeks to get a letter from Korea to where I was. And it had been two weeks before that I had prayed this prayer. Now I get this letter. We've heard about you and that you have a burden for foreign missions. We need some missionary help here. We'd like you to consider coming to Korea. And that, that was amazing. Uh, I found out later that someone we knew that had talked to him. And, and then, <clears throat> well, I, I wrote back and I said, we are very interested, but I, I, I do have... Uh, the strong possibility we're going to get Christmas for Christ. And if we get that, I feel like we need to be here another two years at least. And he said, oh, well, we're not going to push God to just keep me informed. And so then this time timeline had gone by for, for Christmas for Christ. And finally, I got nothing. So I called the home missions office in St. Louis. And I said, have the Christmas for Christ uh, awards been made? And they said, yes, Brother Turner, that's all been made. And I said, well, we sent in our application. I haven't heard anything from you. And he said, she said, well, that's very strange. She said, let me go check your file. She delayed a little bit and came back and she came to the phone and said, Brother Turner, I don't understand this, but we do not have a file on you. Said, no file? And so I called my district superintendent, found out that our district secretary was new on the job and a, a wonderful man, but he, he didn't realize that that was supposed to go to St. Louis. He put it in the district files. It never got sent in. And so Brother, Brother Winford Toole, our superintendent, was coming up to preach for us that weekend, and I showed him the letter from Brother Bernard, and he knew what the situation was with Christmas for Christ. And he said, well, Brother Turner, you didn't, you didn't seek this. You didn't solicit this. You should go ahead and follow up on it. So, so in 1978, we were appointed to Korea, and it's been an incredible journey, an incredible journey. What I'm trying to say to you is God will meet you every step of the way if you commit yourself completely and fully to him, but no halfway commitment is going to work, folks. It's going to take everything. So that brings me to the next thing I want to talk about. Wow. Spent too much time on that other, so let's talk about this. So Jesus has revealed to his disciples 
First uh, Peter in, in Matthew 16, Peter has this revelation of who Jesus is, thou art the Christ. And uh, he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And then just a few verses later, Jesus begins to tell them at that point from this time forward that, <clears throat> that he is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things the hands of the religious leaders there. They're going to kill him. And, uh, but in three days, he said, I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord. We're, we're near, that's not going to happen to you. We're not going to let that happen to you. And, and, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You are a, an offense to God. You, don't savor the, you savor the things of men and not the things of God. And then he said, if any man is going to follow me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. And uh, he said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you'll find it. And Luke puts it this way. He said, pick up your cross daily. So why is it that I, I know some Bible college students that graduated from, or, or at least attended Indiana Bible College, and they are no longer coming to church? In fact, they've backslidden. Why is that? Why would it be possible that even someone here that's hearing me today <clears throat> will not continue this great, incredible journey that you've begun? Discouragement, yeah. Uh, that could maybe turn you aside, but uh, other circumstances, we, we sing about it a lot. Whatever the circumstances are, Lord, we're going we're gonna to still be faithful to you, but I... Why is it that even missionaries sometimes fail? And I know some that began the journey. They were even went to the foreign field and they failed. And they kind of disappeared off the map. Why is that? I, I'll tell you what it is. You've got to pick up your cross and follow him daily. Now, the cross is not heavy, uh, not our cross, because his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's the one that put all the weight of the world on his cross. He carried the weight of the sins of the world. But what you and I have to do is pick up our cross and follow him because uh, the first uh, first experience that we should have with the Lord after we've come to faith in him is dying with him. And, and so that doesn't, that doesn't cease. And so why do, why do some, why do some Bible college students not make it? Not, not there, there could be circumstances that would prevent you from our time from completing your Bible college. I'm not saying that I'm talking about I'm talking about losing out with God. Why, why does that happen? Well, because you try to go through places that you should not be going. You try to do things that you should not be doing. Love not the world. 
neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him because the the lust of the flesh, uh, that's what would keep you from following the Lord. But if you have, if you've taken up your cross, it'll keep you from going through that. Or the pride of life, that is getting your eyes on the sinful things of this world, desiring those things and not making a complete, absolute commitment to the gospel. But if you make that commitment and you, and you carry your you pick up your cross and you follow him, you're not going ahead of the Lord. You're following him. And he's going to lead you. And the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, uh, the things of this world, any things of this sinful world. If you lay down this cross, you're, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to get off the path. But if you're carrying the cross, you won't go to those places you shouldn't go. If you're carrying this cross, you won't be looking at those things you shouldn't be looking at. If you're carrying this cross, you won't... Uh, you won't get entrapped in youthful lusts. And I remember Ruby Clement at, at the Bible College in Portland, Oregon, all those years ago. She made this statement. As far as youthful lust is concerned, that's a battle you cannot win. Don't try to fight that battle. The Bible says flee youthful lust. Don't get in that fight. Flee youthful lust. And if you got this cross, it's going to keep you from indiscretions because it's going to keep you from going through that door. If you've got this cross, it's uh, through times of hardship and discouragement. And I can guarantee you, I know probably some of you have already experienced things like this, but I can tell you if you're going to continue on this journey, then there are going to be situations in your life that are going to be very troubling. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, we're troubled on every hand, but we're not, uh, how did he put it? We're not in, we're, we're not in distress. We're troubled, but not in distress. In other words, you go through troubling times, but if you've, if you've got the cross, you're not going to get in such a situation where you're just going to send up the uh, send up the uh, the signals that our boat is going down and we're not going to make it. You're not going to be uh, sending out distress signals. You're just going to keep walking with the Lord even if you're in troubled times. And then he said, "We are." Uh, it, this is in in. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, we're, uh, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Persecuted, but not forsaken. That doesn't mean that uh, necessarily that, that you're, you've uh, resisted unto blood. Persecution doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to throw you in jail for the gospel's sake, although it could happen. Uh, persecution just means you're going to face opposition. You're going to have people that are going to try to keep you from doing what God has called you to do. Uh, I can remember when we were, when we were uh, 
doing some street evangelism in Moscow, uh, uh, an Orthodox woman came to me and said, why are you here? And uh, I said, well, we, we want to bring the, this gospel to the people of Russia. I said, they're all believers here. We don't need you here. And uh, I wasn't going to argue with her, but, you know, she didn't want me there. And there will be plenty of people that won't want you to do what God has called you to do. But uh, we're, we're not forsaken when we're, if we face those kinds of persecutions. He's still with us. But what happens is if you lay down this cross, if you don't keep the cross, then you don't have anything to protect you. This is a protection. This keeps you from going places you shouldn't go. This keeps you from situations of, of giving up and turning around. If you've got the cross, the Bible says pick up the cross daily and follow him. And he said, we are we're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Praise God. You've got to pick up the cross, and you've got to walk daily. I, this is, I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about some kind of hardship situation where you can't enjoy life. I'm talking about this is the fullness of life. This is the good life. This is, the, this, is, this, is, this is full of joy unspeakable and full of glory. It is a great life living for God. But you have to go back to that cross every day. Paul put it this way, said, uh, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in us. So what does that mean? That means when I start my day, I need, in my devotion time, I need to get back to the foot of the cross. I need to, I need to take up my cross and follow him. If you take up a cross, you're going to a place of death. You've got to die to yourself. Paul said, I die daily. What did he mean by that? He meant I pick up my cross every day and I walk through the day. But it's those who have so much pride that they think they can do this by themselves. Or they think that what I'm saying today is just a bunch of foolishness uh, that it's not worth listening to. That's the kind of person that you won't see them around in just a few years' time. They'll be, they'll be drawn away by the things of this world. But those who have made a full dedication to the Lord are tied to them every day. And, uh, and they're going to keep going. They're going to keep moving on. Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ by whom I am crucified unto the world and the world is crucified unto me. What do you think? Let's stand together. <clears throat>